Welcome to the podcast series Creating Diverse Worlds Speculative Fiction. I'm your host Yushta Shivastav. I'm the literature collective associate at Belong. Speculative fiction is an umbrella term covering fantasy, science fiction, dystopia and everything in between. Speculative fiction has a vibrant and radical tradition of stories that can make us think, can critique society and can show us how it could be otherwise for better or worse. As writers from marginalized communities occupy space in the literary landscape, these genres aid in alternate world building. Sometimes they might work to reinvent world order or hold up a mirror to the evils of our reality. In this podcast series, we will speak to authors who have tugged at the horizons of our imagination and focused this chance to create their own inclusive worlds. Our guest for today is Fran Weil. Fran Weil's acclaimed short stories have appeared in Asimov's Nature and Beneath Ceaseless Skies. Aside from her writing career, she has worked as a science and engineering writer, as a programmer, and game developer, as a sailing assistant, and as a jeweler's assistant. Her first novel, The High Flying Fantasy, Updraft, was published by Tor in 2015 and won a Nebula and Compton Crook Award. Cloudbound and Horizon, the companion novels to Updraft, completed the trilogy in 2017. All are set in the Bone universe. Her debut middle grade novel, Riverland, won the 2019 Nebula, was named an NPR Best Books of 2019. Her novels and short stories have been finalists for six Nebula Awards, a World Fantasy Award, three Hugo Awards, three Locus Awards, and a Lodestar. Her latest, The Ship of Stolen Words, was published in June 2021. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. And your resume is super impressive. <laughs> I think let's start the discussion on a pretty brand, um, like broader, I think, discussion point about speculative fiction as a genre. Like, what do you think? Because it's, a, it's an umbrella term. It covers so much. It covers fantasy, science fiction, dystopia. So what do you think of the genre label and also what what attracted you to create your stories in an alternate universe? Sure. Well, so speculative fiction um, is a broad umbrella and I love the term because it does imply that what if and um, it reaches a whole bunch of different kind of meta narratives that um, Chip Delaney called uh, science fiction a meta narrative because it's about the the stories that we tell in an instance of uh, what ifness, basically. And so even horror is speculative in some cases. What if you know cosmic horror? What if you know mind bending aliens? Um, in the same way, though, that question of what if for fantasy is often what, what if monsters or what if magic, and for science fiction it's what if technology, and the the end of the question is often the same. How are how is our humanity perpetuated in those scenarios? And I love thinking about that. I love thinking about that from lots of different points of view and lots of different perspectives, and both in secondary worlds and in space, as well as in our world and how that perpetuates in our world too. One of the first, at least for a lot of people, a lot of people, the one of the first like fantasies of one of the first, I think, introduction to sci-fi is at the childhood level. Like I think a lot of us believe in imaginative worlds 
a lot more. <laughs> I think, especially when we're kids, everything seems strange and super powerful, and we lose that sense of the strangeness of things when we go to school because we're told this is why this happens and this is why that happens, and that's logical. But I think. What we do need in our lives, whether we're children or adults, is kind of a sense of wonder and a sense of, wow, this is really kind of spectacular that I'm here and I'm experiencing all of this. And stories, speculative stories especially, give that sense of wonder back um, to people who might not be noticing it on their own. But it, it also supports and reinforces the idea that there is wonder in the world, even if we don't always see it. And I think that's really important. Yeah, absolutely. You wrote Riverland, uh, which is a middle grade book. And I was thinking about how you touch upon often swept under rug topic, like domestic violence. So how do you navigate writing like empathetic portrayals for children and find the balance between a reality that may be true for a lot of readers and also like find, as you were saying, pockets of joy and adventure and fun and still like create that fantasy? Yeah. Riverland was tough because that was a topic that adults aren't really comfortable talking about in terms of children, especially in terms of girls. They want the girls in their fiction to be taken care of and safe. And so I got a lot of concern from adults about that. But the kids who read it were, were not, um, they, they just saw these two girls empowered to go on an adventure and save themselves. And that meant a lot to me. That meant the world to me. Um, I think one of the things that allows uh, fiction writers to engage in difficult topics is the idea that um, you can go into a book or you can go into a place and um, engage with the difficulty and figure out ways to solve it or figure out ways to understand it better and then come back out into the world and um, engage with it, what you need to do in real life to manage that. Um, those are quite often referred to as portal narratives, and I really like them for fantasy, especially that sort of intersection of the magical world with the real world is something that I play with a lot. And for Riverland especially, it allowed my my young characters to do something where they went into a different space and figured things out. And um, that happens in portal narratives like Peter Pan and the Chronicles of Narnia, and even um, to a, a certain degree, um, well, definitely the the Phantom Tollbooth. I don't know if you've read that, but the just that that they're the the characters are wrestling with something that is very tough in the Chronicles of Narnia. That's war, and in the Phantom Tollbooth, it's boredom. And that, those are big things. Peter Pan is uh, the characters are wrestling with growing up. And so they go into a, a different space, a fantastic, fantastical space to figure things out. Um, with Riverland, the, one of the problems was that the fantastical world was coming back into the real world. And so the, the two girls, um, Eleanor and Mike, had to solve the, the problems um, in order to save their own world as well. And that was uh, complicated, but it also talked 
a lot about the experience of um, domestic violence survivors, especially children, where things feel like you're trying to make everything look perfect. And it's kind of a magic, um, but not a good one, where everything is supposed to look fine on the outside. And Eleanor and Mike have to wrestle with that. And I think it was um, very, it was very important to me to have that available to people um, who needed to see it. Absolutely. I think some of your biggest like lessons in life or how to, you know, navigate a lot of things that are happening in real life. You do learn from books. You do do learn yeah. from not really parables or moralistic lectures, but really just seeing your struggles on page does help a lot. Yeah. So I was also thinking about what were your favorite books growing up and did you find any that dealt with your own struggles in empathetic ways? So if you if you'd like to talk about mm. it a little. I think I've already mentioned one, The Phantom Tollbooth is an absolute favorite book of mine. Uh, it has all of my favorite things in it. It's got a great map, it's got great characters, it's got wordplay, terrible puns. Um, I read it over and over again. I actually keep a couple of copies just in case I run across somebody who hasn't read it. Um, and so stories like that, I loved myth. I loved uh, Ovid's Metamorphosis and all of the stories that kind of tumbled along with that and fairy tales. Um, I collect fairy tales from around the world. And I just, I really like the idea of transformation. And I've liked it ever since I was a kid. Um, one of the reasons I wrote Riverland was because I too am a domestic violence survivor. And I, um, didn't when I was growing up when my sister and I were growing up we didn't necessarily see that portrayal uh, what we did see were television shows and books where the kids were either objects to be rescued or you know like non-people that needed to be swept up and, and protected uh, by outside you know white knights basically or they were pre-broken objects that weren't going to be any good anyway and we were looking at these and we also were looking at the way that domestic violence was portrayed in these shows and saying, well, that's not us. That's not, you know, we're, we don't have those characteristics. There's no police coming. There's no this, there's no that. And um, I wanted to show that the way that the media, especially in the United States, portrays domestic violence is a very specific way that is kind of shorthand. This is happening. There's a broken arm. There's, you know, a, a visible bruise. And um, that's occasionally true, but it's also occasionally not true. And it's important for people to understand that it doesn't always look like the television show wants it to, because for television, they just needed something to symbolize. This is what it looks like. And everybody just kind of hooked onto that as, okay, that's exactly what it looks like. And that's why um, I often say drowning doesn't look like drowning um, because in television shows and, and movies, drowning is, you know, splashing and sinking and rising. And really it's a much quieter process. And that's the same for how um, kids in abusive situations uh, may experience things slightly differently than the media portrays it. So um, I, I really wish that past me and others like me had had something like that on the shelves in the middle grades. There, there are things like that in, in, for older readers, but um, there wasn't really anything available. And so we weren't seeing ourselves and we weren't learning from that. We were learning from Narnia. We were learning from, you know, even Harry Potter and, and just those 
those books were what carried us forward. And I think the thing about fantasy and about um, quests especially is that characters can be in peril and characters can go on adventures and try and find something or fix something and survive it. And that is the real, that's the real important part. Yeah, absolutely. I think time does give a lot of hope at the end when there's there's a tangible solution or tangible like victory to be seen. Yeah, I think yeah. that does help a lot. I was also thinking about how, especially in India or South Asian cultures, domestic violence is even more stepped under because there's a lot of like hush hush around like kinship systems because our familial systems are very strong about um like the women's agency is very tied up with the um honor of the family so you can't really talk about domestic violence so i think for sure i think i have i have a lot of friends who would have really liked to um read such a book to be able to talk to someone so, so thanks a lot for writing for let's talk a, a little about your uh trilogy the bone universe and i was reading one of your interviews and you had mentioned updraft like the quote the quote is updraft there's the voice of mm-hmm. the city the voice of laws and traditions the voices of those the community has set aside the voices of the dead did you set about from the beginning to create a story which has like voice as the center and the importance of voice as the center and do you think as a woman and a person with disability writing gives one an avenue to explore their voice especially in a world where systems of social oppression usually leave such voices out yes i think with updraft definitely um that that book is all about voice and it's about um who gets to speak and who is heard there's a character um, there are a number of disabled characters in updraft as with most of my stories and um they're not necessarily front and center disabled characters with capital letters they are just they're characters with normal lives and they go about doing things um but in the case of updraft um that book started with a short story with two characters um fighting for the right to speak and the people that i showed the short story to who are wonderful readers um asked me why are they doing this what kind of culture would demand of its children basically this this battle for who gets to speak and i thought about it a lot and i realized that we do um through different means and different different methods but there are sort of choke not choke points but like filtering points where where people get the message that your voice is not important and i really wanted everyone to realize that this is a this is a cultural choice and fighting to speak is important but also listening is important there's another character in the book who um has a lot of the answers but nobody listens to him because he's a phasic so he can only really make sense when he sings and singing being kind of a de- devalued um thing it oddly because the the rulemakers are called singers as well and the whole memory system and the mnemonics of the culture is built on song um it it matters who is listened to and who is deemed worthy to be listened to in that story 
So I really wanted to explore that. And I wanted to explore it on multiple levels, generational levels, ability levels, as well as um, sort of archaic systems of control. Um, so that's that's part of really what, what Updraft is. And going forward from that, um, Cloudbound is definitely about leadership and who should lead and who wants to lead. Um, and then Horizon is much more about community. So it was kind of the voice leadership community was the triad that I, I of themes that I built the books around. Yes, um, I was also thinking about how do you think um, speculative fiction, because it is a little distant from reality, is does it have a tradition of like centering marginalized voices? I don't know that it necessarily has a tradition of centering marginalized voices across lots of different intersections. Um, it does have a tradition of centering the outsider or the excluded person. And for a long time, a lot of us got to see ourselves in that, you know, that person is the outsider, but they were still quite often white and male um, and from a, a European tradition. And I, that is changing dramatically now. Um, you have authors from all over the world who are um, really developing amazing books, um, fantasy and science fiction that center different experiences and different ways of telling stories. Um, Eliette de Baudard, for instance, with the House of Shattered Wings and um, her Zuya series is a great example. Um, Han Song coming out of China. Um, also, uh, S.B. Divya, who wrote Machinehood, which is a book that came out this past year um, that tells the story. The two main characters are sisters. And it's just it's a wonderful um, take up of uh, Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics, among other things. It's just a fantastic, fantastic book. And that idea of bringing in as many voices as possible and telling the stories of many voices, not just the single outside chosen one, but lots more people um, with lots of different experiences and sometimes even groups of people, not just singular, you know, Joseph Campbell hero's journey, but a, a whole community of people is really what makes the whole thing so vibrant. Yeah, I think so too. Um, especially like if I think about like popular depictions of sci-fi, and I think as a as as someone from the outside, as someone like queer and Southish brown and everything, I felt yeah. a lot of times a lot of these main characters feel very like why are you the main characters? <laughs> Some of my questions like you make the whole universe around them like 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 Hunger Games or or a lot of these yeah. you know. Um, like why did they choose this girl to be special and then yeah. uh, why is she the key to everything and why is it not really doesn't really <laughs> communicate any real life revolution would would not happen like that it would have a lot more community leaders coming up or or at least uh, not just like one person's special ability <laughs> One of the things that I really love doing is telling stories from different perspectives so that you, you because once the character is the main character, their worldview is what drives all of the story. So for instance, with Updraft, Kirit's worldview, which is kind of, you know, not the perfect worldview by any, by any measure. She's very, you know, driven and stubborn and she knows what she knows and that's it. 
um, I loved telling the story from other perspectives as well, because that makes you rethink everything from a different, and it's kind of unsettling for the reader. Some, not everybody likes that, but I think that the more we do that, the more we learn how to look for the story beyond that, that first person point of view, we're going to really be able to find um, more storytellers because it's not just about the stories I want to tell, it's the stories that I want to listen to and hear and learn from as well. Yes, I think, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, like having multiple voices and multiple multiple people to root for and like find yourself yes. in. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I also read up your really, um, really powerful and fantastic short story and essay, clearly lettered in a mostly steady hand and the accompanying essay, The Linguistics of Disability or Empathy Over Sympathy. For listeners, it's available on Uncanny Magazine, and you can totally read both the <laughs> texts. But um, I was thinking about how the the tone of the story is so angry and frustrated, and it's a very fresh, fresh perspective. I've never read something like that. And even if in the essay, you talk about the correlation you draw from like the critics who commented on your choice of centering the. <laughs> the disabled, the um, person with disability as the um, first person point of view. And would you yeah. like to talk a little bit more about the essay and the short study and about the dichotomy of empathy versus sympathy? I, I usually love to let those pieces stand on their own because they, they they did say exactly what I wanted to say, but it was interesting what you bring up that that response to the story. Um, in one way, because it's told from the the narrator is is a first person narrator, but she, the narrator is also addressing a you throughout. So. They're addressing the reader, but they're also addressing a character in the story who is going through the rooms and taking the tour. And so there is this first person, second person um, play to things. And it made some people uncomfortable. People didn't know what to do with that. And that sense of I am being pulled into a story without any agency of my own as the you and being told what's happening to me is something that disabled people go through a lot. We, we have that happening. Here is what's wrong with you. Here is what we are going to do. And that sense of, you know, we're going to just push you around until you get fixed is, is quite a familiar life view. And so I really wanted to write it that way so that it would... Um, allow people a window into that experience as well and and hopefully allow them to grow some empathy along the way um instead people were you know not comfortable amazingly enough they didn't feel like it was it was a good position to put the reader in and i thought that was very very interesting um i've gotten a lot of feedback from disabled readers, especially, but also readers from other marginalized cultures as well saying yes, that I, I really, really connected with this story on a couple of levels, one of which was that sense of who has agency and who doesn't, and that sense of anger and frustration at being part of the show, part of the display, part of the medical, you know, establishment um, examples of things, which I have been since I was very young. And just that idea of we're not valued as people, we're valued as 
objects and research subjects. And um, I wanted to use both the story and the essays that accompany it to invoke that very human experience um, from the side of, from my side. I think a lot of people um, from oppressed of any social identity of oppressed social identity do feel that they are always told what to do and um, are always on the showcase. (laughs) Here's how to fit in the world properly is kind of the shorthand for that. And one of the great things about fiction is that it allows us to envision other ways or it allows us to talk about other ways that are happening under the main narrative and bring that forward. And another thing that you mentioned in the conversation as well, having disabled characters that, that are not always front and center and the, and their like identities more than their disability. So, and that got me thinking, do you think creating such like three-dimensional characters, um, a, can a, we can avoid like turning them into mere stereotypes, like stories that have disability like people with disability only there to inspire others, like a neon carpedian sign. <laughs> so what, what do you think of that? I think so. I think that um, there is a bit of, like, I've been in discussions, I've been on panels that have just, you know, been very frustrating where people are talking about, you know, how do you make a character, um, you know, different or unique or unexpected. And one of the shorthands as well, you give them an X part of identity. And that's not, that's not how you build a character, first of all. And second, um, I want, I really want to write the world as it exists around me with, with the, the depth and breadth of people that exist around me. If I'm writing a, a fully, you know, 100% abled story, that's not real any more than any other kind of, you know, single tone story is. Um, the, the stories get richer, the more depth and, and understanding they gain. So, you know, with with most of my stories, there there's quite often a character who is doing lots of different things but they will have a modification or they will um, either the they are disabled in the terms of their world or they're you know older or they have um, experienced something that gives them a a different way of reacting to stimuli for instance they have PTSD or they have um, a different uh, aspect that causes them to engage slightly differently. And I think that's important, but it's also important that they have full three-dimensional character arcs that don't hinge on their disability, that they get to be actual people. And um, I think that's just part of the way that I write because that's the world that I want to see is everybody's empowered to be the people that they are instead of the, uh, the, the you go in this box and you go in that box. Absolutely. And I think we need more stories like that instead of creating more boxes. But yeah. um, I was also thinking about um, how there, there's been a lot of conversation around who gets to write for whom. Like a lot of people have views that why can't, a person not from the identity writes stories 
from that point of view what are your thoughts on that like movements like own voices it 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 varies the own voices uh hashtag has been retired because it was starting to be used as a marketing category which is not what its intent was at all um and i think there are multiple sides to the argument there is um kind of an asking for permission to write in a, a an identity that's not your own um and that's kind of a false narrative because you can in fact write any character you want the question is how well are you doing it how much research have you done and is that character that you are portraying doing damage in the real world causing um em- reemphasis of stereotypes bringing forth falsehoods that could cause real problems for a person with that identity um it's not about am i allowed to or why am i not allowed to it's about how can i do the best work possible and to do that means doing research talking to people sometimes deciding okay that is not my story to tell that is absolutely not my story to tell because that story belongs to the historical narrative and the um the the cultural understanding of a group of people that i don't have full access to and nor should i so it's a conversation that i have a lot with my students it's a conversation that i have a lot as a writer with myself um when i want to pick up a new story that fascinates me or a new world that fascinates me is is this my is this am, am i the right person to tell this story and why do i think so and who else might be out there that would be good at telling the story and, and is this something that they should be doing instead of me i think that's a pretty great way to see this um this is totally out of the question that i sent you but i was thinking about <laughs> if you have any any like any stereotypical stereotypes around disability in literature or in movies that you're really tired of um i think yes there are there are a number of tropes that i'm super tired of one of which is just the idea of um disability rendering you inconvenient to others that 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 a disabled person is a burden that that the main character you know that it, it elevates the main character's character in some way or another by you know persevering through um the idea of uh being disabled giving you some sort of secret extra power to that you know it's just it being disabled is a huge pain in the butt and just like any other marginalization there are there are so many levels to it there's so many layers to it and everyone has a different experience and that sort of gets glossed over in a lot of media but um and i've written on this a little bit um the idea of of horror using body horror and um some comedy using body humor um a lot of those aspects of both body horror and body humor are disabled tropes um it as well there are visual um shortcuts in especially in film but also in in books where um a character is given a disfigurement or is made to be overweight um massively overweight in the case of dune which just came out that's that's you know that is a a constant for one character who's who is very very overweight and it's just um a way for 
the the um media machine to say that person over there is different from us let's go get them and um with the in the case of body horror and body humor this is um literature that is looking at real life dis- disabled experiences and casting them into aren't you glad that that's not happening to you sort of stages and we forget when we do this and all writers in some way or another will do this from time to time, we forget about the person sitting in the audience looking at that happening on the screen and realizing that they're being portrayed in a way that is not their experience at all. Yeah, truly, I think, yeah, a lot of, uh, a lot of tropes should really get retired now. And yeah, I mean, if, or just get examined. I mean, if you're going to yeah. use a trope, flip it, turn it upside down, shake it up a little bit. I talk a little bit about um, uh, there is there's an Anne McCaffrey short story called The Ship Who Sang, which um, deals with a lot of different things. And it has problems. Um, it has all over it. Eugenics is it, it start it like begins in eugenics and deals with a, a character who is born so disabled that she would not be able to survive unless she is put into basically a spaceship as a as a as a sentient mind and the t- first time i read that i was in a full body back brace and i was going to be in it for a very long time and that just resonated with me that 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 concept of well i'm basically in a spaceship right now and i can still do things i can still be amazing um, was really important to me at the time. And when I went back and read it later, I was like, mm, there's some other things here that I want to unpack. But that idea of, okay, A, this is a female character, a female disabled character in a narrative from, you know, the the mid um, 20th century, which never happened. Um, all of a sudden being brought forward and being really important to a situation gave me hope in a way that um, it character in a back brace in a movie of this of a similar period there was a movie called say anything with john cusack and at one point his sister joan comes on screen as a character in a back brace and the whole physical joke this is the body humor part um the physical joke is that she's trying to get a drink of water from a water fountain but she's wearing a back brace with a a chin um support and she's she can't get the water and it goes everywhere and everybody in the theater is laughing and I'm sitting there in my back brace going yeah I know what that feels like that's terrible that's not funny and to have everyone laughing at it is just you know extra layers of cringeworthy horror and I think that what the difference between the movie this was just a side character and a sight gag versus the um the ship who sang is that even with the problems and even with the assumptions that were made in that story, it did in some ways unpack them and flip the tropes. And I, I do want to call that out and say, you know, if you are going to play with those things, take a look at what you're doing and, and do something different with them. And really do interrogate yourself and your characters and make sure that you are, um, exploring things fully and remember you know remember that reader that's out there in the audience thinking about things and going huh they're talking about me absolutely yeah and i think that's the key to what you're talking about empathy especially as writers yes 
another i think um another like feature that i really love about speculative fiction is the um opportunity to build a new world from scratch um so if you'd like to share with us what is your process of world building and if you have any advice for people who are getting into building their own world i everybody goes about this differently and i go about this um differently for different books but for a, a number of books um riverland is um one updraft is another and even the ship of stolen words um i started with a problem uh or multiple problems and with updraft the problem was a monster um or two actually uh, one of the big monsters in updraft the unspoken monster is gravity because falling is bad in updraft and um there is a second monster that is right on this first page and i wanted to figure out what a flying society would do in the case of a monster that was a invisible until it was eating you and b um could come from any direction as well so i started to build the world on those levels and i thought you know we've got this other situation where they're living in these towers how does that work how do the towers stay upright how do you what kind of controls do you need on a society in order to allow people to move back and forth and survive in these extreme conditions um so i thought a lot about that i often um do a lot of research about food um based on the atmosphere and the soil available or unavailable and the different ways in which your characters can eat it kind of goes back to maslow's hierarchy of needs what are the basic um support systems of human life and how do you satisfy those and then going up from there to um how do you give people recognition and reinforce uh laws and things like that so quite often when i'm world building i do a lot of drawing i do a lot of uh brainstorming and tagging things that i want to research or figure out um i do some idea boards sometimes on pinterest sometimes other places where i just pull different things in and see what i want to play with um for riverland one of those was the lighthouse um and the lighthouse kind of grew in in intensity and magic but that idea of a lighthouse beam from another place swinging through um under the bed was a big deal and then i wondered you know what what kind of things would it be made out of and almost everything in the magical side of riverland is made out of garbage in one way or another it's made out of things that has that have been thrown away and so to make the lighthouse out of things like fish bones big ones the whale spines and also um other objects that have been let go um the the light for the lighthouse is made out of old monitors and fireflies and other things that light up that aren't necessarily viewed as valuable anymore and i really wanted to explore that so just playing with um scale playing with things that are small small things that represent bigger things and then looking lastly um i always do this i look at line of supply once you have these things in your world where have they come from and what is necessary to produce them and do you also have that in your world or are you just sort of hand waving hand waving it in um it's really important to know those things even if you don't represent them on the page just so it feels real to you yes that that sound like a lot of work and a lot of fun <laughs> creating these things yeah. yeah it's so much fun i love it <laughs> i was also thinking about your your like uh, ongoing project cooking the books when you were talking about food 
and how did this project come about and what are like some of the insights or like surprising facts you encountered on this journey of talking to authors I love talking to authors about food and their fiction um and, and it came about in part because I really wanted to have those conversations with more people um when I was just starting out as an author and I didn't know many people in the community it was a good way to ask to have a conversation podcasts are excellent ways to make connections with people and say hey I really um really was fascinated with the way your work um happens can you talk a little bit more about it um it we're on hiatus right now Elliot de Bodard and I um jointly did these and we're on a little bit of hiatus as sort of things um world things and work things have happened but I can see um activating it again cuz it's really fun to do um it's also something that um I really enjoy is each of the authors who comes on um can, gives us a recipe either a, a made up recipe in their world or a recipe that they love to cook themselves so it's kind of a um an opportunity to have more multi-layered conversations as well and there are i think about 75 or 80 um recordings and interviews with different authors um on the uh the website right now so there's there's a whole library of them available and um thank you thank you for recognizing that yes absolutely i feel like especially the recipe part i really enjoyed <laughs> because i feel like yeah. as so many um so many things are mentioned in books and you really really want to um uh, eat it <laughs> like especially yes. I think as a child I, I I read a lot of um British literature it was so sad to have all these like shortcakes and um gingerbread yeah. and all those kind of things mentioned and I had no idea what to taste like <laughs> right and then you go and you taste it and you're like that is not what I imagined at all <laughs> that is not good yeah um I think and you know food gives us a way to talk about line of supply because some spices have to travel a long way in order to reach their their sources whereas in other places that's what you get off the tree or that's what you you know that's that's normal um and it's the history of some of these things is so wonderful to research i love it i love researching um the history of like uh different different spices and where did it come from and what is it used for um poisons are the same way it's very interesting um but it's also something that was pointed out to me at a writers workshop once which is that um you know someone somewhere had to eat the first oyster they had to look at that thing in the ocean and say huh i wonder what that tastes like and that just to me seems extraordinarily brave um and probably you know not as smart as it turned out to be in a lot of cases so i'm always wondering about those things like how did we get to the point where this became a a regular on tables totally uh, yeah and and food connects us in so many ways like there there is a lot of other things that are cult- culturally economically sociologically everything is pretty connected to how you everything and you know when you have a guest in your home you offer them something to drink you offer mm. them tea and that it that is an exchange of of welcome and also of sort of opening um the conversation in in many cases and it's something that we we've lost now um a little bit but also um as the world is kind of opening up in different ways where you know the virtual allows more connection across greater distances we need to figure out how to do that invocation to to welcome an invocation to conversation again 
absolutely i will go and try some of your recipes from the, from the episode <laughs> yeah i can vouch for all of them but um i know i mean it's it, it's spectacular when someone makes something from my books there were a couple of people that were making the recipes like apple fritters from um updraft because there are at the teeny tiny apples they're not the apples that we're used to the big ones but they're smaller ones um high altitude apples have grown for many many hundreds of years and thousands of years even so i i was pretty comfortable having apples in in my books and someone made um apple fritters uh with a uh, kind of a berry jam on them and it was just such a fun thing to see out there there are these amazing cookbooks fantasy cookbooks are, are fantastic um and there are cookbooks for things as diverse as Alice in Wonderland and um some of the uh the the George R R Martin books there's the Song of Ice and Fire um uh, is a cookbook um uh, and there are lots lots more not just for us um and Elliot also publishes um some of the recipes from her books in on her website as well surely check that out as well but who is yeah. making Game of Thrones food like the on television that that looks really bad. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, I I think um on television is not meant to look, you know, it's it's meant to represent um a world of either scarcity or gluttony. But um there's a woman named Chelsea Monroe Castle who used to do the in the crossroads and she would um cook up lots of different authors food, uh which is really cool. I think the last question I would pose to you and I think that would benefit everyone me as well as the people who listen to this episode what are some books or publishing platforms or authors you'd recommend people to check out especially those that have like sensitive portrayals of marginalized voices Well, I've mentioned a couple already and I'm going to circle back around to those um SB Divya's Machinehood which I know is available in India um is is phenomenal it's sci-fi it's just wonderfully wonderfully done and the world building is immaculate um i also uh zen cho elliot bodard um their books uh, all address um different kinds of marginalizations and different kinds of marginalized cultures um i really am enjoying and this is english language only again but i really am enjoying the um the the stories that are coming out of fire um which is a literary magazine that is exploring um writers work by writers of color for writers of color as well and then um the the collections that i'm loving the anthologies that i'm loving um the sea is ours which is a, a solar punk southeast asian anthology from a couple years ago that's just fantastic um Nisi Shaw does beautiful portrayals of multiply you know differentiated and um intersectional characters and then the work of Nello Hopkinson I think should be on everybody's radar as far as looking at the ways short fiction as well as long fiction as well as um the essays that she's written um she was the the science fiction and fantasy writers of America grandmaster last year so a lot of this is has been celebrated recently but is the brown girl in the ring is just an amazing book to start with and she's got some new things coming out that are just phenomenal Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm going to write everything down <laughs> and search for these books now. <laughs> okay. But uh, yeah, thanks a lot for sharing all your thoughts and all your um, conversation points. 